Today, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 10, as we continue our series in the book of Mark. The next passage in the course here is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 for today. 13 through 16. It says, Then they brought little children to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. But surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will illumine this passage of Scripture to our hearts and give us your insight and your wisdom of how it rightly applies to us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was last week that I preached on Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus emphasized marriage and that marriage was designed by God in the beginning. And Jesus Christ also emphasized that it's God who joins male and female together in that miraculous one flesh union. Now, an obvious benefit of marriage is the birth of children. In fact, God told the first male and female in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, He said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So from the very beginning, God designed marriage to function as a boundary marker in which a man and a woman would love one another and even enjoy the fruit of that love with the additional life of children. That was God's intention from the very beginning. But the day after God told Adam and woman to be fruitful and multiply, there was a a rebellious angel that tried to destroy God's plan. In fact, he tried to destroy the first marriage, and he even tried to stop the birth of children. For a moment, Satan's evil plan worked. Satan was able to turn the male and the female against one another. Adam no longer functioned like a protective husband in Genesis chapter 3. And the woman, she lost her desire for him. What God had joined together on the sixth day, Satan was tearing apart on the seventh day. In addition to killing the marriage... The book of Genesis implies that Satan had brought death even inside the womb of the woman. Because the sting of death, because of the sting of death, she would be barren. Just like most of the other women in the book of Genesis was barren. It was death leading to death. And the works of the devil were bringing God's plan to a halt. But at that moment, in Genesis chapter 3, God came to the rescue. God restored the marriage by 
renewing the woman's desire for Adam. He also repositioned Adam to rule as a faithful husband. And also God promised that even though the woman would give birth in pain, God promised that the woman would, he would greatly multiply her conception and that she would bear children. Therefore, any remnants of death in her womb was pushed aside. She would give birth to children and eventually Christ would come to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, I've just reminded you of that historical account in the book of Genesis for two reasons today. The first reason is you learn this. Satan has always hated marriage. And the second reason is this. Satan has always hated children. Satan is against the love within marriage and he's against the fruit of that love which is the birth of children. That's one of the motivating factors of what Satan's trying to do in Genesis chapter 3. He's trying to separate and destroy the marriage so that mankind would not be fruitful and multiply and there would not be a growth of humanity. Basically, he's trying to kill the children before they were born. Well, when you look at this passage in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, in this surrounding context, what did we talk about last week? We saw in verses 1 through 12, the Pharisees were against marriage as God designed it. Here in our passage today, in verses 13 to 16, the disciples, what are they against? They're against the children who are being brought to Jesus. It helps you to see why Mark put both of these passages side by side. Mark does not want Christians to function like Satan concerning marriage or concerning Christians or, or concerning children. Mark wants Christians to honor marriage with the one flesh union of male and female. That's what we saw last week. And now Mark wants Christians to bring children to Christ. And he wants Christ to touch them with his grace and mercy and salvation. That's what Mark really wants us to pick up in this passage. But what I want to do today to summarize the substance of this passage is to explain the problem, the solution, but also the example that's set in this passage of Scripture. Notice the problem, first of all, in verse 13 and 16. This is the bracketing, the beginning, and the ending of this section. In verse 13, they brought little children to him. This was obviously the parents bringing little children to Jesus. Why? So that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And then look at verse 16. Jesus took them up in his arms and he laid hands on them and blessed them. The problem is, is that the disciples do not want Christ or do not want to allow these children to be touched by Jesus Christ. Why? This is, you look at this and you're thinking, are they crazy? What's wrong with this? What's the, here's the question. Why do these disciples, why, why are they putting such a barrier between Jesus and children? What are they so worried about concerning Christ touching children? What, what is so wrong with this? Well, to answer this question, 
we need to take a look at the earlier sections of Mark because there is a repeated theme that comes up over and over and over again throughout the book of Mark. And we're going to see it's about the touching of Jesus upon people. And the concern that the disciples had is that they are functioning according to the Jewish law and the Jewish customs of their society. And Jesus' touch is pushing back against all the unclean, against all the diseases. And his touch is not making him unclean. His touch is bringing the unclean clean. For example, let me go through all the touching in the book of Mark. Ready? In chapter 1, verse 31, he heals Peter's mother, mother-in-law and touches her with his hand. Mark is explicit about all these touchings. He touches the leper in Mark chapter 1. Many, and then in chapter 3, verse 10, many people who were afflicted were pressing about him to, just to touch Jesus, Mark says. And then in chapter 5, there was the, un, the woman who was unclean because she had the flow of blood and she just touches Jesus' garment and she is clean and healed. There's a dead girl who is 12 years old. And in the Old Testament law, you are not supposed to touch dead people or dead animals. If you touch it, you're unclean for a time. Jesus comes in there and touches a dead body and says, get up, little girl. And he raises her from the dead. Mark chapter 6, verse 56. Jesus enters into villages and cities in the countryside. And people begged him that they might just touch the, uh, the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were healed, Mark says. In chapter 7, Mark talks about all the regulations of the Jews and how they had to wash things a special way in order you know, to, for purification laws that they added to the Bible. And Jesus in that context basically says that your uncleanness comes from your sinful hearts. In Mark chapter 7, verse 33, there's a speech uh, a deaf, speechless man. He can't speak. And Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and he spits on his hand. And then he puts his, his hand on his tongue and touches him and he can speak and hear. Whenever Jesus sees the blind man in Mark chapter 8, 23, Jesus spit on his eyes and lays his hands on him two different times and he could see. There's a young boy in Mark chapter 9 Jesus drives out demons from this boy. The boy falls dead. Jesus touches him, takes him by the hand, says, Arise, and raises him up. Mark chapter 9, he takes a little child and sets him in the midst of the disciples, lifts him up in his arms, and says, If you receive one of these, you receive one of these little children in my name, you receive me. And then here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus touches these children. You see how the Gospel of Mark has this repeated theme over and over again for chapter after chapter of Jesus touching all these people that he is healing. And what's happening is that in this context, the disciples had their mindset according to their Jewish culture. The Jewish culture at this time was obsessed with being ceremonially clean according to the Jewish law and Jewish tradition that was added to God's law. And so most likely, this is what's happening. These disciples see these children as being ceremonially unclean. Because what did children do? 
They play with frogs and lizards. They touch things all the time that the Pharisees would say, that's unclean. Now, this is not about dirt. This is about religion. This is about touching something in, according to Old Testament law that would render you unclean and not holy, not purified, and all the other additional things that uh, the Pharisees would add to God's law. And think about this. Many of these children would have been just born four days ago, maybe. And a father bringing a child, and that child's not circumcised yet on the eighth day. Keep that boy away. Okay, that's what the disciples are doing here. It's kind of like the disciples have forgotten what has gone on beforehand. They've forgotten all these miracles of Jesus touching people, and Jesus is pushing the uncleanness away with His cleanness. They've forgotten all about Jesus' power and His redemption. And so therefore, they think they need to protect Jesus from these unclean children. That's the problem of this passage in, with the disciples. What's the solution? And here is an emphasis I want you to see, the solution here. The solution is Jesus' perspective. And this is very important when we apply this even to our church. In verse 13, who is bringing, who is coming to Jesus? It's parents. They're bringing their little children to Jesus. But in verse 14, what does Jesus see? What does he emphasize? He doesn't emphasize the parents. He says, let the little children come to me. So as parents are bringing the children to Jesus, Jesus is looking at this and realizing these children are coming to me. Even though the parents are the active ones. Even though the parents are doing the action here, carrying the babies up to Jesus, Jesus is looking at that child, this unclean child who just touched a lizard or something, this unclean child that may not be circumcised before the eighth day. Jesus is saying, you let that child come to me right now. In other words, I want to touch him. I want to bring my grace. I want to bring my cleanness, my redemption to that child but the disciples are putting that barrier there. But the perspective is this. What's important is Jesus' perspective. The solution is this. Understanding that is how Jesus looks at this. It is, it is, it is children coming to, to be touched by the redeeming hand of Jesus Christ. Notice this as well. The Apostle Paul uses very similar language in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14... Paul talks about the children or a child of a believer being clean and holy before the Lord. In that context, just because the child is a child of a believing spouse in the covenant community of the church, the Lord looks upon that child as clean and holy before Him. This is why in the New Testament... Children of Christians, children of Christians, right when they're born, they are considered members of the church. And as a member of the church, children, little babies, infants, 
They should receive the sign of being included into the church, of being a part of the Christian community. They should receive that sign of baptism and affirmation that this is who they are, that they belong to Jesus Christ. And most importantly, it's a sign that Jesus Christ has touched our children. This is why baptism, the Lord's Supper, preaching of the Word, reading the Word and prayer, they're called means of grace. It's a, these are the means of grace. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Word of God, they're tools, they're instruments that Jesus Christ uses to touch us. Let me just ask you this question. Where is Jesus right now physically? Jesus right now physically, His body is in the highest of heavens. Uh, he actually has to look down just to see the stars below Him. Okay, that's how high He is. He's way up there. But So how does He touch us like, like He was doing in the book of Mark? How does He touch His people with His grace? He uses the instruments, the means of grace. He uses baptism. He uses the Lord's Supper. He uses the Word. He uses prayer. That's a way in which Jesus Christ touches. And the first time he touches our children is in baptism. This is why the Apostle Paul, and throughout the New Testament, there's, there's three ways in which baptism is alluded to as far as how it's given. It's poured, it's sprinkled, or it's anointed. And this is what it means to be baptized. For example... In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Now, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that passage, Paul is alluding to the meaning of the water coming down and being poured upon you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than out of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Okay, in Genesis 4, he cried out for vengeance to God. His blood cried out from the earth. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. Lord, forgive this child of his sin. Lord, forgive these people of their sins. And the book of Hebrews speaks about us being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. This is also used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, saying that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Also, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, He who establishes you is Christ, and he, has anointed a, he who has anointed us is God. Anointing is something that you did to the high priest in the Old Testament. Now God anoints us now in the New Testament. How? By the means of grace. How does he first do this? By your baptism. And this is the way Jesus Christ touches us continually. This is why when Mark is writing this, he expects the early church to, to get it. Oh, Jesus received children and touched them. Parents brought their children to Jesus and Jesus touched them. That means I need to bring my children to church and let them be baptized, let them grow up in the Christian community, let them be identified as Christians, let them have the name of God upon them, and let God continually touch them every week. 
with His Word and His sacraments. That's the means of grace, and that's why it's important that you understand what Mark is explaining. God, Jesus Christ is touching people all the time throughout the Gospel, and every time He touches them, He's healing them and, and restoring them. And you're reading the Gospel account, and you're saying, Lord, I wish You would touch me. And Jesus says, I do. Every time you come to worship, every time you read the Bible, every time you take the Lord's Supper, every time you witness a baptism or when you are baptized, that's when Jesus Christ is continually touching His people with His saving grace. That's why the means of grace are so important for your, for your maturity, for your growth in grace, because the Lord's in the highest of heavens, but He still touches us by His means of grace today. Now, lastly, this application we have here, Jesus even makes it in verse 15. And that's the example of children. Jesus Christ says, Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, here's a little irony about children and childlikeness. And that is, it's really bad for adults to act like children. We saw that earlier with the apostles. Uh, the apostles are very childlike, meaning they want to position themselves and sit with Jesus uh, whenever He gets in His glory, and they're arguing about who's the best. And we saw that they're very childlike earlier on. But now Jesus takes a child and says, be like a child in this sense. You have to be childlike with faith. What is the virtue of children... With faith. What is the virtue that a child is explaining, that Jesus is explaining about faith? And it boils down to this dependence and trust. That's what children do all the time. That's the bubble of childhood, is that they live in a world of dependence. They depend upon their parents, they depend upon the provision, they trust their parent to take care of them. All of that is an example is a parable of saving faith. All of you who come to worship the Lord today, you're coming as a with childlike faith, saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need, I need you to touch me with that word. Lord, I can't live a week without you. Lord, I need you every day. That's childlike faith. It's a faith of dependence, of trust, that, that your heavenly Father truly is your Father, you hear the parent language there? He is going to take care of you. And children assume this. Children know this. Children, that's just, it's in the back of their minds. They just know they're going to be taken care of when they're around a loving family, your father and mother. That parent structure among humanity is the same type of parent structure in your vertical relationship with you and God. God is your heavenly Father. And He cares for you so much. He will provide for you. He cares for you so much more than all the sparrows out there. And yet He feeds the sparrows. He, he feeds all the birds out there. And yet, you are even more important than the birds, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So in this passage of Scripture, we have a negative example. Let the church and let Christians not be like the disciples. Don't put barriers between the Lord and His children. And this is why 
It's important to encourage children after they're baptized that as soon as they can make a profession of faith, as soon as they understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper, as soon as that is understandable and they reach that point of maturity, bring them to the Lord's Supper. Bring them before the session. Don't put a high, high standard of some kind of seminary degree or something like that over their heads. Bring them to the Lord. Let the Lord touch them as soon as possible and grow them. That's the only way we continue to mature as Christians is with the touch of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy and even your humility. So are you stooped down even from the highest of heavens with all the means of grace to nurture your church and to grow us in your heavenly kingdom. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will grow all of our children and grandchildren in the faith. And yet, Lord, ironically, as we all grow in the faith, we understand that in this life, we're really all children. For only in glory will we see the Lord face to face and see the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that great maturity in the life of the world to come. So of childlike faith, Lord, we depend upon you with, for your saving grace, for your provision, and we pray, Lord, that you'll protect us every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.